Do you think you may have a problem with your alcohol consumption or drug use? Are you thinking about quitting and want to know what all the sober hype is about? Whatever the reason, I'm so grateful you're here with me today. My name is Sarah, and I am the creator and host of Sober Gratitudes. I once was an active alcoholic, and after decades of failed attempts to control my drinking, I finally reached out for help. Letting others help me is why I'm here today, living a life I never thought possible. The suffering of my past was the catalyst I needed to find recovery and be receptive to healing. I created this podcast out of the desire to recover out loud and, with the help of my guests, show you how a better life is possible after addiction. Whether you have been here before or you are a first-time listener, I would be so grateful if you would take a moment to write a review on Apple Podcasts so that it can reach more people who may be struggling. Together, we can help those in need. You can also reach me at sobergratitudes at gmail.com with any questions or comments. Thank you again for dropping in today, and welcome to Sober Gratitudes. Hi, everyone. I hope you are all doing well today. And I want to thank you so much for dropping in to listen to another amazing episode. If you are here for your very first time, my name is Sarah, and I will be your host. Today's episode, I'm really excited about. It is with a former college co-ed who I reconnected with over Instagram. His name is Christopher Laurie and has 13 years of sobriety. He is a husband and a father, and one of the most kindest and most compassionate men I've ever met in recovery. He shares about his long journey in active addiction, coming out gay, coming out sober, ending stigmas, and more. Please make sure you check out his Instagram account at Christopher Laurie, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome, Christopher. I haven't been back to Allegheny since graduation, so. Yeah, pretty much the same here. I think yeah. I went back once and I didn't behave too well. So I was well, like, I'm not, I'm not going back anymore. I just don't behave well there. Right, the first 15 years probably would, I don't know that I was even in a place to, you know, have been, anybody could have reached me to get me to come back. So, you know, and then after that, I just, I don't know, just some weird, feelings about that and memories and you know there's a lot of I don't know if that's I'm sure that's where my disease started or at least took the deepest root yeah. I don't know that you know that's really what predicated it but it, it certainly played a very big role in the downward spiral so same same yeah so, yeah So I guess what I would start by saying is that um, I understand stigma so much just because I think that so many people have this preconceived notion of what an addict or an alcoholic is, you know, and I think I did as a child too. Um, you know, you sort of imagine what this looks like in a person, you know, and it's never a very pretty mental picture that you paint when you're, when you're thinking about an addict or an alcoholic. Um, so I guess, you know, just for me to start by saying there is really no alcoholism in my family. Um, not that I've ever been exposed to, you know, I, I found out later in life that, you know, a paternal grandparent 
had some issues with addiction, um, but I never knew him. You know, he was gone by the time I was one. So, you know, that goes back to the whole argument, is this genetic or hereditary or, you know, is that, you know, predisposed trait? Um, regardless, um, there was never any nurturing from a family perspective. You know, there, I had a great childhood. There wasn't any trauma. There was no molestation. There was no abuse. There was, you know, it's just a happy, happy kid. Um, but what I will say is I don't feel like I was ever, I don't feel like I was ever content, right? There was always something missing. There was always something that just wasn't quite right. Um, and I, I, I mean, I, I will, I'll tell you, um, I've known I was gay since I was about seven years old. Okay. You know, there was nothing that, um, it was nothing that I chose. It was nothing that was, you know, ever a question. I just knew, I knew at seven years old that I was attracted to boys and not girls. Um, but in the seventies and eighties and in the time when we grew up, it was such a different climate about sexual, you know, orientation and, you know, gender identification and all of the things that, you know, we fight for now, you know, you didn't see high school kids going to prom together as a same sex couple. And there weren't people coming out at 14, 15 and 16 years old. And, you know, I think ultimately it was just because it was an unsafe environment. So I grew up kind of always knowing, but always hiding. So much like you said, you know, being able to live your true self, I don't think I ever lived my true self until I came out of the closet and then got sober because it was two co-occurring things that I was constantly hiding. So, you know, college was a funny thing for me because I was gay, I was in the closet, I was in a fraternity. Um, you know, you're expected to behave a certain way, both socially and sexually. And so I did that thinking, okay, well, if I can't, if I can't come to terms with this, I'm going to at least, you know, fake it till I make it and play the game. And, you know, maybe I can skate through without anybody finding out and be relatively unscathed. Um, and that was pretty much the case, you know, and I think alcohol and drugs were a great way to hide the unhappiness I was feeling. Mm -hmm. um, I would also say that I don't think my sexuality created my addiction. I don't think that it drove me. I think that it was a comforting part for me to help cope with some of those feelings, but I don't think that's what initiated it or predicated it in any way. So that's one of the questions I typically get, like, do you think that you turned to alcohol and drugs because you were gay? And I don't think that's it at all. You know, I think that that stuff was all already there and it was just kind of like this perfect storm, you know, and all of the things aligned that just, you know, created this so I was like, that's interesting because, you know, like, I guess one would kind of make that assumption that, you know, uh, and I've heard the story, I've, you know, I've interviewed other people who, you know, in the same kind of situation and, um, you know, the, the drinking really keeps secrets, mm -hmm. you know, other secrets, like even the secret of like loving alcohol too much, you know, like, <laughs> it's just really that great that great drug, that legal drug that, you know, keeps us from, or me, I know for me, I just, all the shame I had about, um, and my self-esteem issues and countless other things, drinking was just my comfort and my sidekick. So it just sounds like for you, it just kind of 
that you were going par it was like parallel issues it was it and really and, you know it's funny well it's not i mean it's it's the shame thing that you know we talk about as as alcoholics and addicts and and that just sort of cyclical being all the time of you know i'm, I'm ashamed when i drink but drinking makes me feel the comfort to hide the shame that I feel and how it just keeps getting deeper and deeper, you know? Um, so, I, I, you know, finally, I think after college, um, things really, really took a turn for the worse for me. Really? Um, yeah, I, I finally came out of the closet um, and I drank a lot in college, you know, I drank a lot. And I started experimenting with other things. Mm -hmm. um, but after college, things got really, really bad. You know, I, I had started talking about grad school and plans and I moved to a bigger city where I felt like I could kind of disappear a little bit more, mm -hmm. both in my addiction and in my sexuality. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that it made it easier for me to come out of the closet because I found more like people. And I found that comfort and that sort of group safety, yeah. but I still was hiding my true disease. Mm -hmm. you know, with every fiber that I had. And what it, what it ended up doing was creating this life for me where I had to compartmentalize everything. You know, I had come out to some people and some of my family, but not to others, you know. So right. I shared part of that sexual orientation piece. And then I had talked a little bit about alcoholism to some people, but not others. And then there were some friends I drank with, but didn't do drugs with. There were some friends I did drugs with that didn't know I was gay. There were friends that knew I wow. was gay. You know what I mean? So I had like these pieces all over the place. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself one time, like, what would life be like if I could pull all of these things together? Yeah. Just be me for a change. And I think that was where I, I started to think about how do I find the help that I need? And so it was, it was a long journey. I mean, it was a journey of 12 years for me from the time I, I remember starting to think about trying to find some help and get sober and be honest, both with myself and everybody else until the time I, I finally got there. So. So did you, um, when you decided it, you were ready to get sober, was it is was it 12 years of trying to get sober or was it like did you just hit like this so this is it i'm done day one is here <laughs> yeah you know so i think that first thought was a very very preliminary what if what if what if and it took 12 years to get to a place where i had finally realized my bottom and said I'm tired of living like this. I'm, you know, the, the old cliche of I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. I, I was at that point after 12 years of really hard drinking and drug use. So. Okay. And um, then do you, you, did you find a program of recovery that. I did. And I found lots of programs. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so very, very brief, you know, sort of drunk -a -log, um, after college. I bounced from city to city, you know, looking for any kind of geographical cure. You know, when things started to feel uncomfortable, I would run. Um, and I wound up lastly in Miami Beach and I lived there for a few years with the first like real boyfriend that I had. And I got pretty deep into, um, on top of, you know, out of control alcoholism, cocaine and ecstasy and several other harder drugs. And um, I got arrested for the first time. And so with that came some, you know, serious looming criminal charges, um, facing some prison time. 
Oh, wow. uh, and they put me, mandated me into a court ordered program in lieu of, you know, incarceration. Okay. So that was like my first real experience with any kind of counseling, forced to go to AA meetings. Um, and although it did not work at the time, and you know, when I say did not work, it was because I was not ready. Right. Um, it was definitely a great seed that was planted so that when I did get to that point, I knew there was a place that I could go. So that was, you know, super helpful for me in hindsight. Um, so long, long story short, after that experience, um, I kind of bounced in and out of rehab programs. Um, all in all, I did seven inpatients, three tries it outpatient, um, two halfway houses, and one long-term nine-month, what they call therapeutic community living situation. Okay. And when all of those failed, um, I ended up spending two years in state prison. Okay. So, um, and they couldn't drink there. Could not drink there. Yeah. <laughs> or but, do drugs? Could you do drugs? Could you, you do drugs? Could, but I did not. So, okay. so weirdly, about six months before I ended up having to go, um, you know, I had all these criminal charges that had been rolled together from failed attempts at treatment. And they said, you know, if you fail to complete, if you fail to complete, these are the consequences you're going to face. And finally, about six months prior to the termination of these deadlines, I, I decided it was time. And that's when I got sober. And so, you know, I got to that point where I can't, you know, I was 33 years old. And I looked around and I said, I have nothing. I have nothing. I have no home. I have no family. I have no plan for a future. I have no self-respect. Um, I don't have the trust, you know, of, of anybody close to me. And I got to the point where, you know, that was ultimately my bottom. It was an emotional thing, you know, the jail time and the prison and all of those things, as bad as they were, they weren't bad enough to make me stop. Mm. You know, I had to get to that place emotionally yeah to make a difference for me um and i guess to backtrack a little bit I, I i came out of the closet about a year after college and it was amazing it was like this incredible weight lifting off my shoulder i had so so many expectations probably horrible ones of what people were going to respond and act like none of it was true you know it was a complete catastrophe i created in my own head okay. everybody was amazingly supportive and loving my family has been fantastic about it uh the one negative thing about that is is i think unfortunately in the gay community at least in my experience back in the 90s you know i was exposed to a nightlife and a club life where drugs and alcohol are so rampant and prevalent that it really fueled my addiction so as great of as an experience as it could have been, it was also extremely dangerous for me. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so essentially coming out of the closet with your sexuality mm -hmm. sounds like it was a, a pleasant, a, a ple yeah. and, and then coming out as somebody who's been an alcoholic and a drug addict fill in the blank there for me um it's also been extremely pleasant again i think it was for me nobody forced me you know it had to be on my terms and i think that's the only way it really works for us at least you know in my experience you right. know it's you have to get to that place where you know 
everything kind of finally comes together. You know, the thoughts that we have and that, you know, mind-body connection and then, you know, the spirituality piece of it and the emotional piece of it and the mental piece of it. And until all of those things feel right for me, I wasn't, I don't think I was physically capable of getting sober, you know? I was constantly fighting myself. Um, so when I did get to that point, it was a very, it was, I mean, it was that aha moment, you know? It was that spiritual awakening that, that you hear people talk about and you never really understand. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, you know, it's, it's crazy for me to think that there was a point where I couldn't go a half an hour without altering my state of being. And now I can't remember, you know, feeling like that. You know, it's, I don't have the time for it. I don't have the energy for it. There's so much other life that I have to have, you know? So when I finally did get sober, it was, it was fantastic. And there was still a whole lot of bad, you know? I still had legal consequences. I had to spend, you know, they had, sentenced me to two years in state prison and I ended up getting released after about 14 months because of merit boards good behavior um, I was supposed to be on parole for 16 years I had to in years 16 years wow I had to report to a parole officer every week I had to pay restitution I had to pay for monitoring um, they wanted me to go to x number of outpatient groups and you know, I did everything they asked because I didn't know how else to be successful. And so they let me out after 14 months and then I was released off of parole after 12. So, you know, what could have been 16 years of, of you know, more chaos was extremely short-lived. And, you know, I was very fortunate. And at that point I just, you know, started, you know, living and, you know, taking things day by day. And I stopped being impatient and I stopped having expectations and mm -hmm. just found that things finally started to fall into place for me, so. I'm so happy for you. And and so I, I, I have to say like, on your Instagram, I was looking over your Instagram <laughs> and you just have such a beautiful family and your little boy, he is just, I just want to eat him up. Yeah, he's- What, he's, six months old now? months and he is by far my best accomplishment you know and it's amazing so yeah oh i'm so happy for you and you're sober you're a sober dad and you i'm a sober dad yep uh, you know god willing this may will be 13 years oh congratulations so, yeah thank that's you. a lot of time oh um, yeah, it's great you know i'm just so happy for you and you know and that's the thing like i love having people on this show who who the show the show like we're in a show it's a, this i i find this to be more of like a community of just love that's just what i like to refer to my podcast as and and to hear like because i knew you in college i don't know we weren't really friends i i don't know if we were i don't even remember but we hung around a lot of the same people yeah we were around a lot of the same people i think our circles kind of you know, crossed a lot and intermingled. I don't know that we knew each other super well in school, no. but yeah. Well, I always thought you were like way cooler than me. So I, I, cause you were, a, can I say you're, a, a, was it Fidel? Adele. No, I was Adele. A, oh, you were, 
But you didn't you hang out with that other fraternity a lot more? I hung, yeah, I was kind of all over the place, you know. I think I where you were I was. So, <laughs> yeah. That's so funny because you know I hung out with adults a lot, right. a right. little too much, and right. <laughs> but I didn't realize. My yeah. memory was that you were an adult, that you were a fidel. No, I was adult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And yes, yeah, so I thought you were way cooler. Okay. And so the, I was like too nervous to like, I, I had some friends that were close with you, but mm-hmm. they, I, th- I felt they were cooler than me as well. So um, I just, you know, went about drinking and keg right. stands and whatnot. Um, <laughs> just to keep the numbness going, you know. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, just the transformation is just incredible. And to see you, like, to, I have this memory of you. Like, you were always such a nice, I always thought you were a really nice guy. Well, you. you know, the cool, the really cool. I keep saying cool. I'll listen to many times I can say it. And, but I always knew you as a really super friendly, nice, funny guy that everyone seemed to really like. And, um, I, you know, it's it's funny you say it. I mean, I think I was. Part of me always wonders, you know, did I do, did I, did I have to do that? Did I have to act that way? Like, was I trying harder than other people mm. to sort of hide? Do you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there was always this part of me that was so secretive. And, you know, living in that fraternity house, you know, I drank probably more than anyone. Um, and I had this crazy tolerance that somebody my size probably should have never had. And that should have been an indication to me then that there was an issue. Um, yeah, but it was, I mean, I remember living there and thinking like, you know, every time somebody made a gay joke or said the word fag or, you know, which was, you know, every 15 minutes, you know, in a fraternity house, like just feeling my face turn red, you know, thinking to myself, do they know? You know, do they oh, know? Yeah. Are they going to find out? So I always wonder, like, you know, did I try hard to be some, did I try so much harder to be somebody that I wasn't for so long that I lost part of who I really was? Um, but, you know, like you said, with alcohol, it makes it so much more comforting to not care. Oh, so, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of backtracked because I want to get back onto your family. So you have, you, you're newly married as well. <laughs> Yeah, I got married a year ago, June, um, in New York City during World Pride, which was amazing. Um, So, you know, six million people in New York City celebrating Pride, and we had this super small ceremony in Central Park, and it was was just beautiful. And, you know, my husband is an amazing guy, and yeah. And now that, and your son just scrumptious, like you're so (laughs) scrumptious. And like, I'm going through like this baby fever right now because my my three boys are teenagers now. Mm -hmm. But well, my oldest is um, 17. Let me show you a picture. (laughs) I'm killing this. This is his senior portrait here. Handsome. He's a handsome guy. Yeah. But like, I'll forever think of him as like my little baby, you know, like my. Like, like he, oh, I won't show you. I'll keep showing you a picture after. Because uh, it, it, it's just so weird. The time goes so fast. And, you know, although I was, you know, my, my alcoholism was like, it, it was like up and down and up and down throughout the course of my life. You know, like in college, I don't know if, it, if you felt the same way with, with your drinking, but like, I felt like, like I cooled the jets around the time. I, gra- I graduated college actually, 
um, because I just blew up like a blueberry and I think it was more of a vanity thing. And I just, I just didn't feel right. I didn't feel good. I, I'd been broken up with, with like my 20th boyfriend and yeah. I exaggerate, but um, I was just miserable. And so, and, but then like the, I would then get involved socially with people and then we would just, everyone would be like, let's go to bars because we're still in our twenties. And then, but I always liked it a little bit. I always knew that I liked it much more than everyone else because I just would want to continue drinking and people would stop. And I'm like, this is weird. Mm-hmm. Why do I, why do I want to just keep drinking? And I feel like I can't really stop drinking. And, yeah. and it was, that was the shame. That's where a lot of the shame came in. Cause I felt like, well, why can't I control myself? Like what, like, and, and then I would try that I met my husband in my early twenties. And that was a time when like, it, I was kind of like in a good place and I'm like, okay, I'm like, you know, not drinking a ton. I, like I'm doing other things like activities that don't involve alcohol. And I don't want this episode to become about me, but I guess I have a tendency to talk too much, but for you, like, I don't know if you felt the same thing with your, with your disease. Like if I, guess, I guess, no, I didn't, you know, from college on it progressively got worse. The only time I had any interruption or reprieve was when I was in some sort of rehab or program, Mm -hmm. and they were typically mandated. Um, I usually tried to embrace them, but I think that's, you know, part of my personality where if I'm going to be sober, I'm going to be the best sober person. If I'm going to be an addict, I'm going to be, you know, the craziest addict. If I'm going to drink, I'm going to be the drunkest person at the part, right? So if somebody put me in a rehab, you know, I was, I was the, you know, textbook patient you know I did everything they wanted me to do and you know I crossed my t's and dotted my i's and followed every rule and I was you know the neatest person and the cleanest person because I had that need for I don't know if it was acceptance or approval or you know a praise you know praise or you know accolades or whatever it was but those were my only real reprise but they weren't for me you know they were for somebody else so as soon as I was done it started right back where I left off and then would get worse. Yep. So my, my disease kind of went like this and then would have these pauses and then continue to get worse. Okay. Um, I never did it for myself. You know, I never did it for my family, no matter how much they begged, you know, it was only when completely forced. So, yeah. Yeah. And, but it sounds like when you did finally like pull the trigger of sobriety that it was, it was totally it was only for me and yeah. that's how it had to be, yeah, it had to be. I, I remember thinking to myself along that road and I don't remember exactly what point but you touched on it a little bit when you talked about you know in your 20s going out to bars you know and I remember thinking that and I remember thinking okay I'm 27 or 28 and I remember crossing paths with somebody from high school or college and thinking oh wow you know they've really got it together and I'm super happy for them and thinking how embarrassed I was because of where my life was. Mm. And so I would continue to drink and party and think, you know what, I don't have the responsibility. I don't have the accountability. My life is fine. At, at one point, I just started to notice that the people I was drinking and partying with were continuously getting younger and younger because the people that were my age were not still doing this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so all of a sudden I'm 30 years old and I'm drinking and, and doing drugs with 20 year olds because 
you know, my 30 year old friends had babies and <laughs> we're going to work on Tuesday morning, right? Like, they weren't at after hours at 4 a.m. So, right. you know, I just, and that's kind of where things really clicked for me. And I, I started to think, you know, life is, you're not living, like you're existing in this, in this, you know, place that you've created for yourself. That's not a reality. And you know, there's no real joy in it. You know, there, it stopped being fun decades ago. And in my head, I just kept chasing, you know, that feeling that you could never catch again. So. So, okay. Um, I want to, I want to ask you about your, like how you feel about yourself and like when you think back to you as an active mm -hmm. addict, alcoholic, when you when you think back to those days, like, do you, well, I'll just share my, what I have a hard time even recognizing myself back then um, because inside I was, I mean, I was really a total mess, like spiritually, psychologically, emotionally. Mm -hmm. But I could, I could just make myself look like everything was fine and I could kind of just say the right things and be the right way to just, just so much that I could get by, but I was really struggling and I, it was, so it was a huge secret, you know, my drinking. And so now that I don't have that secret and I'm completely out, I feel like I can just truly be my authentic self. And so, and I'm so grateful for that. So when I think back to my old self, I like have such compassion for my, I used to like get uncomfortable thinking about what I used to be like and the things that I did and yeah. how I felt about myself. But like, I know I, I still need to remember it because that's what got me to today. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you, do you have the opportunity to like, do, do do in your program of recovery do you speak at meetings about your I do story? Um, yeah what what I would say to that is is I think the one thing that a lot of people don't understand and the one thing that it took me a long time to sort of come to terms with is that and I don't want to say all because I hate terming that for everybody right. but a lot of time you know alcoholics and addicts are survivors I mean, we are some of the strongest people that I have ever met in my life. And I say that because when you talk about your old self and I talk about my old self, I don't think that people truly comprehend how hard it is to put on that smile and to get up and go to work and to go to a holiday function and be around family and pretend that nothing is wrong when inside you are crawling out of your own skin. Right. And we are experts at camouflage and experts at deceit because the most important thing in the world to me at that time was to protect my secret of being an alcoholic and an addict and i would have done that with every fiber of my being mm -hmm. because it was a horrifying thought to me for anybody to truly know how bad it was so when i think back i have tons of compassion and empathy for myself and the beautiful part of this program is that i can talk about it now and new people that come in and people that are fresh in sobriety can see that and they they, they truly do see hope um it's so hard when you're you're actively drinking 
to find that hope. You know, you can pretend you see it and you can talk about it and think this is going to get better and I'm going to get better. But really when you're alone with yourself and your thoughts, you know, this is not getting any better, you know? So, yeah. That's beautiful. It is, you know, it, the relief I feel of not needing to, not that, you know, you use the word deceitful, like we're the, and I don't, and I, I agree with you in using that word, but I think it's deceitful in the, in the nicest kind of way. Self-preservation. Right. Because like, like our only option, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Like, because I, I didn't know how else to be. Um, <clears throat> and my partner in life, I chose at 14 when I took that, I first got drunk and yeah. all of my anxiety melted away and yeah. all of like the traumatic experiences, of my childhood melted away. And it was like, there's my partner for life. And then, and then I didn't know in decades to come, it would end up turning against me like it did. And, you know, and so, so yes, the self-preservation that makes so much sense to me because it's like, you don't want to like, it's, it's like, I felt such shame to like, be like, I, you know, I want so badly to drink like all of you family and friends, but I can't like, and like inside of me, I was like, oh, I wish I could do it. And it's like, nobody, I've had people who've just newly found out that I'm, I've been sober eight and a half years. They're there like, oh, I'm sorry. I never knew. And I want to be, no, it's, it wasn't your responsibility. Like, it's okay. Like, like, it's great that I figured like that I got to that place on my own, you know, and decided that I was also, I woke up one morning and I was sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And, and I, the first thought was go to a 12 step meeting. And I had never even thought about that program ever. my entire life and it was like where did that thought come from so and that's when my life just totally completely changed and turned around I didn't I give you a lot of respect for that because I run into people periodically that say you know I got up and I reached out and and I called or I I found a a 12-step meeting and that's hard that is so hard you know I'm very fortunate that I was sort of forced in there you know, I don't know that I would have made that decision on my own. I mean, I can't say that, you know, maybe when I was ready, I would have, but those first, you know, failed attempts, like I would have never reached out and sought one out if somebody had not dragged me there kicking and screaming. So it was great to have made those connections. And the the most amazing part of it is, is I still communicate with people that I met in meetings 10 years before I ever got sober you know, so it's awesome. Um, Before I lose my train, I I wanted to say to you, one of the things that I think is the most beautiful part about this journey of recovery is being able to sort of recognize um, that I'm not ashamed. You know, when when you talk about that word deceive and you said that, you know, you kind of agreed with me, I I don't want to put a stigma on that and thinking that it was something that, you know, was done with with malicious intent because right. I, don't, I don't feel like anything that I did in my active addiction and, and alcoholism was done with malicious intent. It was done strictly out of self-preservation. You know, yeah. I lied because I thought it was my only choice. Right. I, I lied because I had to shield you from who I was because I didn't want to look at it. How could I possibly expect you to see it? 
Um, the thing that's so great about this now is that I truly know that everything I went through, that all of those things that seemed so horrible at the time, the embarrassment, the shame, just the, the fear, um, the, the bad choices, you know, the criminal charges, the, you know, failed attempts at career, the missed opportunities, they have all just become stepping stones to who I am as a person today. And had I not experienced those things, you know, I can't say that life would be better. It would be different, but I like who I am, you know, and I like my life now. And, and I think that I needed all of that to be here. So, well, so, so let, let's talk about I, everything you're saying is just so incredible. And what I hear, I'm like, I can't wait for my listeners to hear everything you've said and um, any people from Allegheny. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> Who are listening like, like wait, I partied with those two yeah. rascals. <laughs> all of them. I partied with all of them at Allegheny, I think, at some point. You know. And we were the same class, right? Uh, you were older. I was ninety-six. Okay, yeah, okay. I'm the older yeah, I'm ninety-five. Yeah. Um uh, yeah, so pretty much the same group that gosh, I, I barely remember. I don't know how I graduated. So my parents don't listen to this episode. <laughs> So, okay, so I want to talk more about like what your life is like today, because I want the listeners to hear like you really told us what life was like before. And it sounds really, it was really hard mm -hmm. bar none. So tell me, tell us what your life is like today uh, and what you're grateful for. And um, so I guess I'm most grateful for family, you know both my immediate and, and my chosen family now, and you know, my extended family, my spouse's family. Um, it's, I said in a meeting one time when I gave a lead that I remember what it was like when my parents couldn't stomach the, the fact that I was gonna be around because they were just waiting for that next shoe to drop, you know? Mm -hmm. And one of the most grateful things for me now is knowing that, you know, people wanna be close to me, you know, that they want to experience and they want to see and they want to be a part of, of what my life is like now. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, it's life. It's still life on life's terms. I mean, there's still really crappy days and there's still really hard points. And obviously this year has been a struggle for everybody in some way, shape or form. But I mean, I don't need to, to drink to cope and I don't need to find a way to numb, you know, I've found different outlets. Um, I'm grateful, you know, that I have this incredible husband and the opportunity, I mean, we met this woman who, you know, I feel like as part of our family, she is family now. I mean, she graciously carried a child for us and, um, you know, we're starting the process and she's gonna carry a second. And it's, I mean, it's so crazy to think that, you know, at my age, I'm gonna have two children under the age of two. But at the same time, you know, that this woman thought, you know, thought of me as a person who could be loving and responsible enough to raise children. So, I mean, if that's not, you know, a huge statement and gift about what sobriety has done for me, then I don't, you know, I don't know how else to express it. But I mean, her husband and her children have become family. Um, yeah, I mean, my career is no way, shape, or form what I ever imagined I would be doing when I was pre-med at Allegheny. 
and you know now I, I work in sales and I have a you know real estate business and I own a gym and I do kind of a little bit of all kinds of things but you know it's it's amazing you know um, I'm, I'm very structured I think that's part of you know sobriety for me you know taking care of myself physically you know finding time to to be alone and, and take care of myself spiritually and then finding time to include my family and then you know still making time for recovery um, you know I have a sponsor who I'm incredibly grateful for and we meet every week and you know when meetings were live and in person, I still attend meetings weekly and try to give back as much as I can. And, you know, I'm grateful to have those connections. It's, it's, I guess, I remember what it was like, probably 1999, 2000, when things really got pretty dark for me. And I remember thinking, I didn't, I hadn't come home for a holiday in probably two years. And just thinking nobody can stand the thought of being around me. And I have such a vast network of people now that I love and that I know love me and that are so excited and supportive that it's, it's an incredible experience. So, yeah. What a, what a wonderful story. I love it. I just love it. And um, so, um, this may sound silly, but <laughs> in a meeting that I go to, it's in California, they do this thing um, called a gratitude wheel. Okay. Have you ever heard of that? Mm -hmm. So, and I can cut this out if it sounds silly. <laughs> so we kind of like ping pong back and forth. Yeah. What we're grateful for. Okay. So, um, so, so either one of us can start. Okay. And it can go as long as it, we want it to go or okay. get stopped, but it's just, it's just a really neat thing. So okay. <clears throat> um, it can be anything. Okay. Cause the first thing when you were talking, I was thinking about like the people that are still, you know, sick and suffering and how, and knowing, I know a lot of people who, who've reached out to me there. I quite a few mm -hmm. people have reached out to me questioning, the relationship with alcohol yeah. and i'm like i just want you to go in my brain and and see how it's not a train brain anymore like and how free i feel um and that's like one of the greatest gifts of sobriety so for me i would say the the sense of um freedom and mm -hmm. peace okay um, for me, I would say one of the things that I'm most grateful for is experience. Um, just being able to be present in the moment and appreciate life's little experiences. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to you. I remember always thinking when I was, when I was in active addiction, and I'm probably talking too much, but I kept thinking like, wh where is my happiness? Like, how do I find that happiness? Like, why am I so unhappy? And thinking that this happiness was this destination. Like, if I can just get this job, or if I can just buy this car, or if I can just find this and be in this relationship, that I'll finally be happy. And I never took the time to appreciate and experience that moment of, you know, the change of a season. Um, one weird, weird, weird little tangent. One of the things I remember most about early sobriety 
as I went for a run, and it was probably this time of year, the leaves were changing, and I was out for a run, and I just remember thinking the sound of the leaves crunching was so great. And then I ran past this pine tree, and I could get this incredible, vivid, like, just smell of pine, and I thought, I can't remember the last time I remember smelling a pine tree or being outside and hearing the leaves crunch and feeling this great sense of appreciation and gratitude for these tiny little things just in that split second and thinking I have missed so many things in life because I was too busy focused on some unattainable thing that I had created in my brain, you know? So. I can, I, I, I love that because when I was newly sober, I had a similar experience, which I am grateful for. Um, it, and it was, I was sitting on my front steps and I had noticed um, the colors of some flower. It was in the spring because I got sober in May of 2012. And um, May what? Pardon? May what? Um, May 8th. Okay. But then I relapsed twice, like one day relapse, like two okay. one day relapse. So late August is my like last okay. drink thing. But anyway, so I was still, so I still was like getting those senses back. Mm -hmm. And I, in the first time I realized that was happening was I was sitting on my friend's steps and I noticed the color of these beautiful flowers. I can't even remember, but they were just the most vibrant, like the color I was, it was as if, as if I had never seen color before in my entire life. And I just, just cry, was crying. And my husband came out and he's like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> like, why is like this beautiful day? What is wrong? I'm like, look at the color of those flowers. I can't take it. Like it was just over, like, and I realized at that moment that like my senses, like I was so um highly sensitive and i'm already a highly sensitive person so it's like i i didn't have like the toxins were just you know coming out of me coming out of my pores and like defogging my brain and my all my senses so like music um that i'd always loved from the time i was a very little girl and I was listening to music and the and i'd be crying at at songs and uh, just and and reading books and like he, like thinking this is like ve the the way that this author writes it's like velvet in my head like it's just incredible like your, your senses like and and the, that well, we didn't have time to listen to music or read books when we were drinking I mean no I, I wouldn't have thought you know to read a book I I mean I couldn't waste time reading a book when I could be out drinking right and, you know, there was none of those things for me yeah. It's, yeah, yeah it, I, I, I get it. It's, it's incredible. So. It's great. And that's, it's kind of, it was kind of like a high. Yeah. And then it just kind of settled. And then, but now it's like, I can still like really appreciate yeah. music and, and everything that my senses experienced so much more than I ever did when I was numbing them sure. for so many years. So, um, this has been such a great conversation and I'm just so glad that I finally. You look exactly the same. <laughs> it's it's crazy. No, let me just tell you two things. Okay, so Zoom has like a filter thing. Okay, yeah. okay. and and two, I like makeup is really awesome these days. Yep, like I don't get that. So. <laughs> like and the glasses are hiding the fact that I'm starting to get a sty in my eye. That's not kind of 
thank you. No, you look amazing. I mean, I know you're a big exercise guy. Um, and really that just incredible. Like you're everyone go. So what you're, what's your handle on Instagram? Cause everyone needs to go and visit. It's just my name. Chris. Lowry. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's okay. And I'll put it in the show notes if that's okay. Cause, yeah, sure. cause everyone needs to see this gorgeous family that Chris has. And Chris has this amazing body that you obviously worked so hard. Like, I mean, just. I'm, I'm fighting the years as hard as I can. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Like in the late forties, like, I'm like, wow, everything's really going south here. My, you know, yeah. my husband jokes and he was like, you spend a lot of time at the gym. And I said, listen, you know, you're younger than I am. And if I don't do this, when Griffin is in high school, people are going to think I'm his grandpa and I'm not <laughs> having it. So you don't look, no, you seriously, you look yeah, like you do look like you're in your late twenties, I would say. Well, thank you. Yeah. If you get real close, it's not. It's, <laughs> but thank you. Do you have the zoom filter on too? I don't think so. I don't know how to use this. Um, I'll need to give you a tutorial after. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so is there anything else that you want to share? Like, I know we kind of like, we, it was such a lovely conversation. I love how these conversations go where it's just very organic and we kind of bounced around different, different um, parts of your journey and whatnot. But is there anything that you want to share to like anyone who might be listening, who is struggling with their sexuality, who's struggling with addiction, um, you know, who's really stuck in that, oh my gosh, there's no way out kind of feeling it's it's funny that you reached out to me about this so last sunday michael came my husband came home and he said hey we're going to um the jackson center which is um robert h jackson was a supreme court justice who's from jamestown which is where we live and my husband's on the education board there so he said for um coming out day they're interviewing um, people about their experience coming out. So we did a, a big Zoom interview and we're filmed about that. So we talked a lot about that. And then today we're talking a lot about sort of coming out and, and, and finding your sobriety and your program of recovery. And I think what I would share for anybody first, my Instagram profile is public. My Facebook page, you can find me. Anybody that's out there that has questions, reach out. I will answer anything with complete transparency full disclosure um i think one of the biggest things that people are afraid of is asking questions you know they have all of this fear built up and we create and so what i would say is when you feel like the time is right for you because this is everybody's own personal journey um you know do not be afraid to ask for help because none of these things work if we try to do it alone you know not coming out of the closet not you know, getting sober, not finding a program of recovery. Um, I have been so blessed in my life with the people that have been so supportive and just shown me complete unconditional love that, you know, it's, 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 it's just astonishing. So yeah. and reconnecting with people like you and, you know, even like some of my fraternity brothers, like after, I mean, I, I dropped off the face of the earth, Sarah. I mean, after college, I completely cut all ties because I was, mortified for anybody to know what I was living like. And so reconnecting, I think I got on Facebook two years after I got sober. And that was the first time anybody had seen me since 1996. You know, there was a true fear of, you know, what are these people thinking about me? So I would say to anybody out there that, you know, is struggling with those feelings is don't, you know, don't compare 
your insides to other people's outsides. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not trying to attain what we think we see in other people. We're just trying to find that place of comfort for ourselves. So that's beautiful. Yeah. Reaching out for help and know and trusting that if you reach out to somebody who is in recovered, um, who who has come out um, with their sexuality, all we want to do is help people who are struggling. Like we, and that's the thing. Like I know, like I was afraid people would judge me, that I would be shamed even more than I was shaming myself. And it's like, it's the total opposite. It's so freeing to be able to be transparent and to be stuck in addiction and feeling like there's no way out, really to go to somebody who has time in, in, in recovery and wants to help you. Like they really, truly want to help you and they're not judging you. Like that's really the case. And that, you know, that that's, that's a part of like the whole stigma and misconception. I just want to keep talking about. Yeah. Um, in, in the recovery community, um, because we, we are misunderstood, I think. And, and, um, I don't know, it's just, um, and I don't fault anyone. I don't, you know, judge anyone who doesn't understand because I didn't understand when I was still active. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, the big picture is, is that we need people to ask questions because without the education, you know, there's that fear of the unknown, you know, in recovery as well as, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, trying to figure out your sexuality or if you're struggling with accepting it, you know, people don't understand what they don't know and people don't understand what they're not exposed to, you know, on a personal mm -hmm. level. So, right. you know, if you have a question, ask me, you know, yeah. I can only tell you my own personal experience and I can only tell you, you know, from my heart that this is, this is why, and, you know, nobody's going to judge, you know, so. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's awesome. But I'm just so happy for you, Chris. That really. I'm happy for you. I mean, you seem truly happy and really connected and I think what you're doing is fantastic. So please keep doing it. You know, Aww. any, any platform that can reach people that are, you know, struggling is important. Well, that's the thing. And, and that's the thing in the, in the recovery platform, I feel like, at least I do, that we're all supporting each other. It's not like this big competition to so say who's got the better recovery podcast. No. Like, right. I really don't care like where I rank or whatever. If I, I don't even think I'm, <laughs> but just the opportunity to give people a chance to do, like this is like service work in a way too. And, um, and it helps people. I mean, I had one episode um, where it literally saved a young girl's life because a friend of mine sat her, this woman down and said, listen to Mackenzie's episode. Um, she's in my first season. She's actually my sponsee too. Oh, and, okay. and the, the girl listened to Mackenzie's episode and she like finally surrendered and she went to rehab. And when I told my sponsee, she, she and I were like bawling. Cause you know, it's like, we're like, if we can just help one person, to, to have that hope, enough hope in their, in their heart that they're, and to know that they are so worth it. Like no matter what you've done, no matter how badly you fucked up, yeah. you know, I mean, <laughs> you're worth it. Everyone is so worth it, worth being sober, worth being a parent, um, everything. So. Absolutely. 
Okay. Well, I hope, I hope I'm so grateful and thank your husband for sharing you with my community and with me today. And, um, and I'll talk to you soon. I hope. Take care. So much love. Okay. All right. Bye. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Thank you to my guest and all of you for listening. I hope what you heard inspires you to look for and recognize the gifts of sobriety. Sober Gratitudes, a podcast dedicated to delivering messages of hope through true stories of recovery. A sober life is possible if you truly want it. Thank you.